Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party podcast, this one featuring SNP MP Tommy Shepherd. Uh, this was recorded in October 2015, uh, just before the Tony Blair episode one uh, was. So this is, uh, we're sort of skipping back in time a bit. Tommy's an absolute legend. Uh, he's known in comedy circles. He set up a very famous comedy club called The Stand in Edinburgh that then moved to Glasgow and to Newcastle. And uh, I've played all three of those comedy clubs. They're absolutely fantastic. And the testament to his talent. Before he did that, he was Deputy General Secretary of the Scottish Labour Party. So he's been on a phenomenal journey from uh, politics, in the Labour sense, in Scottish Labour politics, as it was at the time, uh, and the way it was at the time, more to the point. Then setting up this enterprise through a love of stand-up comedy and then leaving the Labour Party, really after becoming deeply disillusioned with it, joining the SNP, standing in Edinburgh, where his uh, first comedy club stands, and getting elected in the election. You may have seen him on various things, and he's very good on the radio and on the telly, and he's certainly a very thoughtful man, uh, a, a lovely fellow, naturally very funny, certainly one of the best communicators the SNP has, and one of the nicest MPs in Parliament. I'd met him during the Edinburgh Festival and asked him to come on the show, and, and therefore he did. He's absolutely wonderful and puts the case for independence in a way that is very gentle and and almost poetic. And whatever your feelings about the independence referendum in Scotland and whether we have another one and um, the tone in which it was sometimes conducted, Tommy Shepherd is a very welcome antidote to a lot of the divisiveness that has uh, sadly pervaded on both sides. He's a wonderful fella. It's an absolute pleasure to listen to him, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Is this thing on? Is that working? Can you hear me loud and clear? Lovely. Well, thank you very much. People sound uh, refreshed, which is uh, always a good sign. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we've had... uh, This show's been running almost for three years now, so... I, I always thank people at the end of these shows, but I should thank you all for coming tonight, because uh, it really does mean a lot, and I think it's a really cool thing to create a gig uh, that is effectively built around politics, and not just politics as comedy, but politics as entertainment, as and as information as well, and I, I'm sure people come here for a variety of reasons, uh, to learn, to listen, to ask questions, and you'll get the chance to do that uh, at the end. And as always, uh, and I know I don't need to say this, but I think it's worth saying if you haven't been here before, that these things are always meant to be respectful. We can ask uh, questions vigorously, but it's always done in a respectful way and in a light-hearted manner as, uh, as possible. Um, we've never had a, uh, a guest from the Scottish National Party before, but I think it's fair to say that the Scottish referendum was the single biggest defining moment, really, uh, in the last year, including the general election uh, for this country. I think it, was just, it has politicised people in Scotland in a way that in England we could only ever dream of. So to talk to someone who uh, previously was Labour, set up a, a group of comedy clubs in Scotland, and is now one of the leading lights and by far one of the most popular uh, MPs in Parliament is, is a real treat. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't heard of him already, he really is a, a legend and I'm sure you're going to love him. Give a massive welcome to Mr Tommy Shepherd. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Absolute pleasure. So we were... What a build-up. Um, <laughs> were, you, were you at Promises Question Time today? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. I, well, in fact, I had two questions down in the international section before it. So, uh, and I'd be mum in the gallery, so I had to be there. Oh, so your mum came down to see you today? My mum came. I, she's 19 next birthday, uh, and I'd forgotten just how long those bloody corridors are in the House of Commons. But she, uh, <laughs> she made it through them, and, uh, yeah, she was up in the gallery with my 85-year-old aunt looking down on me. Uh, and yeah. is that... No pressure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> is that the first time they've, they've been to see you, Dan? Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. First time any family has come to see me. I try and discourage it normally. So. <laughs> what, to make you too nervous? No, no, just because I just stuff and nonsense, really. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you finding it? Because the, I, I think the, the new intake of SNPMB has been the most exciting part of this new parliament, and it's still very new. Uh, and uh, it, it seems that people, just in terms of adapting to the customs and things, it feels as if, though, actually, the public have been seeing Parliament through your eyes more than anyone else's, and you've highlighted a lot of the arcane yeah. uh, customs at Parliament. Archaic, right? Bordering on the arcane. Uh, bordering yeah. on the arcane. <laughs> and you highlighted a lot of them in, their in your conference speech. I mean, do you find it a genuinely challenging place to work? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, people keep saying to me, are you enjoying it? You know, and I, I'm just not sure that's the right <laughs> word. But, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been a political activist since I was 16. So it's a privilege to, to be able to do it full time and get paid for it, to be honest. So, I, I, of course, I sort of enjoy it. But sometimes I do feel incredibly sort of underwhelmed by the whole experience. You know, things that probably are meant to impress don't, to be honest. It's only so much, you know, I've been in a lot of churches in my life. So there's only so much Gothic architecture that's going to you over, you know. So, um, but when you're in the inside there and you see it working, it's it's the, there's an excitement, of course, but it's tempered with frustration. You know, I mean, we spent so far this week. I've spent about three hours just standing in a corridor, waiting to give my name to the clerk to say how I'm voting. You know, literally, because that's how you do. You queue up, and you everybody has to be in the lobby, and then they shout, "Lock the doors!" And you know, and then and then you traipse through, and you give you give your name. You know, in the Scottish Parliament, you just vote on an iPad. I mean, it's, it's just... And lots of other... The UN, I mean, lots of other places just do electronic voting. But we keep to this real old-fashioned system, and it's... Uh, yeah. So it's frustrating. But, but it, so much of it is frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating to look at a Tory-majority government elected on 37% of the electorate, to be honest. Um, it's, you know, frustrating to have most of the members of Parliament not even elected in the first place. Although they did mess things around this, this week, in fairness. But. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that sometimes? I suppose politics throws up those contradictions, don't, doesn't it? And the SNP have been uh, very passionate in, in campaigning for not just reform, but abolition of the House of Lords, and, and that's something that resonates across the UK. Occasionally, though, an upper house can, as you say, um, deliver something that you agree with. Uh, uh, yeah, and I'm not against an upper house, by the way. I mean, you know... I, I, so cards on the table, I don't really even want to be here in the sense of being a member of parliament, obviously, because uh, our number one credo is that Scotland should be a self-governing country and work with England and other nations in these islands cooperatively. I mean, I, longer term, I'd favour a confederation of, of independent governments in these islands, but that's very much for the future. We had a referendum a year ago. People said they want to stay within the United Kingdom at the moment, and, uh, and, and our job now is to try and... Well, it's twofold, really. We said that, one, it was to provide a strong voice for Scotland, and I think... In fairness, we've done that, but we're trying to do that in a way that we that isn't tacky or parochial, to be honest. I mean, where there is a definite Scottish interest, and there is, we'll speak up for it. But a lot of the other times, I mean, Angus Robertson, our leader, I think, in pretty much every Prime Minister's questions, has not used his uh, guaranteed questions to quiz Cameron on anything Scottish. They've all been either UK or international Sorry. agenda items that he's, that he's raised. So, but we will speak up for Scotland. But the other thing we're trying to do is be part of what we've termed a progressive alliance um, if, you know, if, if we can build one. Now, obviously, we didn't quite get the election result that we wanted in terms of a Tory majority, but we are working hard with the other opposition parties to try and build that alliance. Now, it, so, but we've got a problem that runs through all that, haven't we? Which is that, you know, okay, we're, we're here, right? 
I don't know how long we're going to be here. And while we're here, we want to make the best of it. We're not here to, to wreck the institution. So we, we do want to try and improve it and make Westminster better as a parliament. But it does seem odd that that should, that should be our responsibility to take the lead in that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> given it, given it, I'd rather just break it up. I think it's, I, I it's, I, I it's sell-by date is long gone. But. Do, you, do you sometimes find yourself conflicted then? Because there, there must be parts of parliamentary life that you quite enjoy. And obviously, it's, it's highly political as you are. The booze is cheap. I mean, it, you, <laughs> can, can you be it. easily seduced by the parliamentary lifestyle? Well, uh, no. Uh, it, it's got. I mean, I tell you what. I mean, twenty years ago, when I worked for the Labour Party, I used to be, I, I, and I lived in this city. I used to be, I was in and out of that building quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that's why I don't find it daunting in, in any way. And and my overall uh, sort of perception of the change is that the security's got better and the catering's got worse. <laughs> I mean, you know, because it's like, it's. I mean, I remember in those days. I mean, the, people used to be. Sitting in the bars, getting pissed at all hours or whatever. Now the bar, the bar shuts thirty minutes after the session closes. Right, so the bar shuts at eleven tops. I mean, there's no hanging about there, or you know, having a letting your hair down or anything. People have to go and do that in their their own private abode somewhere. <laughs> so, um, so no, I mean, it, there's not a great. And and as for the, you know, it's three pound fifty a pint or something, which I know in London is is a giveaway price, but actually it's supposed to be non-profit making. And I, as a person who actually run bars. And know what the markup is on a when when you buy a pint of beer, I am quite staggered at the quality and the price of the catering in the house. I mean, seriously, I mean, it, well, it's privatised, of course. It's a private company yeah. that put it out years ago, and and I I cannot believe that the catering is subsidised. I can't believe it can be that bad in that price. Just can't. <laughs> But there's no danger, is there? Anyway, so I have to get journalists to take me out for proper meals. <laughs> <laughs> There's no danger then of, of the, the 56 or the 55, as it may be. Um, 55 and a half. 55 and a half. <laughs> um, going native and saying, actually, we actually quite like things down in London. No, there isn't, actually. I think, I think I'm probably... Um, I, I'm one of the most, uh, what's the word, acclimatised members of, of 56. I mean, there would be... Actually, in fairness, that's not true. There's quite a few... I mean, one of the remarkable things about the 56 is that a lot of people are MPs now who really didn't expect to be MPs. Yeah, but, I mean they, they didn't. There was a, there was a lot of conversations on May the eighth. What went on <laughs> the lines of, darling, you know, when I said I had no chance of being elected, well, <laughs> well, actually we have to sell the house, um, you know. So uh, I remember but, when I worked for the Labour Party, I had a guy, and you would sometimes convince people to stand for elections on the basis that they wouldn't get elected. Yeah. And I think people outside of politics don't realise. I would say the vast majority of people who stand for election do not want to get elected. And do it on the basis that they will do the party a favour. Fly the flag, absolutely. Usually, the day after election days, the phone would ring in the office and I would have someone bollocking me saying, you said I'd get elected, you let me down, the Labour Party didn't help me, that's why I'm a loser. I remember the phone ringing on, whatever it was, 10th of May after some local election campaign in Northampton. I answered the phone and said, hello, East Midlands Labour Party. And this guy went, you bastard, you told me I wouldn't get elected. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. was living fine. He's still there, he's on the well, other county council for 10 years. <laughs> I think we just set the gold standard for that in, in, in Scotland. But, yeah. Yeah, so there's all these people, right? and, and, and the consequence of that is, is that um, there's a really big spread of people. I think more than any other party, we do represent the public that elected us. So you've got, pe I mean, we've got some high-profile youngsters in the team, obviously, um, but we've got people, and they tend to be in their 40s, 50s, a few in their 60s, who've, who've led a life, who've been around the block a few times, who've achieved something, um, and therefore they have a... They're coming in with a perspective which is 
politicised, but it's not. It's so far away from the sort of career politics that the big parties have fallen into that that's why, in part, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's refreshing to the Westminster Dialogue, actually. And that's why, you know, we're getting people in, in, in the other parties come up to us and say, we're glad you guys are here now. They didn't, they didn't say that in the, in the first week, but they, <laughs> they say it now. So. Well, Dennis Skinner didn't, because you're trying to sit in his seat. Yeah, we've, so. made, we've made fit. We've made, <laughs> yeah. But do you find... I mean, I suppose all parties will have... Um, backbenchers that are more diverse than the front bench, uh, certainly the Labour Party, and to be fair to the, the Tory party now. Um, that presents risks as well, though, doesn't it? Uh, because you've got a lot of people that perhaps are inexperienced. And has it been a challenge, perhaps, being part of a group with, where so many people actually aren't used to being professional politicians? Um, well, it's been a steep learning curve, but, I mean, people are doing pretty well. And, I, I, I mean... The there were, so there were six of us before before the election, and now there's 56. And one of the things I learned pretty quickly that was that actually the the six weren't going to be much use to us in terms of telling us how to survive or what to do. Because, to be perfectly frank, they were just getting used to not being spat at in the tea room. I mean, it was it was like just you know they they really it's it's just a whole different world. And to become the third party of the United Kingdom, which you know constitutionally we are now with all of the. The, the constitutional rights that gives you is really, it's just it's night and day. So, But one of the great things that our, our leadership did at the beginning was they, they tried to get around this idea of front bench and, and back bench. Mm. I mean, we're an opposition party, so we're not going to run the thing. So, so the job is how do you, you know, the task was how do you organise yourself most effectively. So from the word go, we divided into seven policy groups. So we've got a team working on international, another on welfare, another on economy, etc. So... And, and, and you could only be in one. So you had to choose a, a sort of area. So we put clusters of people who have been given a brief to get on and know the policy, know the subject, and their committee membership in the House of Commons relates to that area. Uh, and it's not... And there, I mean, some people will do the front bench thing when it comes to questioning the, the minister, but actually we've got people working on all sorts of things all sorts of time, and we're covering... We're using the 56 to try and cover the full spread of the challenges that are available to us. And it's, it's a different way of political organisation, I think. So we don't have, we don't have the backbench, frontbench split, as it were. Um, and the other, thing, the other thing that makes us a wee bit different, I mean, this may change in time, but you know, I, I got elected on a, on, a, on a manifesto that you could boil down to seven words. It was stronger for Scotland, anti-austerity, anti-trident. That was what was on my you know, A0 size poster. Uh, mm. And people voted for me on that basis. They voted for all of my colleagues on that basis. And those seven words, even as it's very, it's very glib, this, but it, but it actually defines an awful lot. It covers you for about 90% of the decisions that we've had to confront so far. So because people have that rubric and work within that, the, the, there's no, psychologically, there's no, there's no room to go off the reservation in terms of policy or the manifesto. So the you don't get the types of splits other parties have. The first three words allow a little bit of leeway. I don't think stronger for Scotland could be, you know, subjective, uh, to say the least. I mean, what fascinates me about the SNP particularly... It's a, it's a double entendre. <laughs> in, in, in Westminster is, it feels like it's very much a, a new party, as you say. The six aren't actually that much used to the 56. As a block, it's a new party on the whole. Um, the Labour Party has a left and right wing that clearly defined us to the Tories, as did to some extent towards the end of the coalition, the Liberal Democrats in people's minds. 
Where, where are the wings with the SNP? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's what I'm trying to find out, because um, I've, I've not been in long. <laughs> I mean, I only joined the SNP on the 23rd of September last year. I can't believe, I, yeah, I can't so believe it. After the, after the referendum, so we, we can come back to a minute. But, yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm sure there is a left, right and centre within our group, but, but you can't see it because most of the stuff we're voting on, like, you know, the European referendum bill, the welfare bill, the budget, the, Scot the Scotland bill itself... We, we are 100%, whereas one in these, you couldn't get a cigarette paper between, you know, the most right-wing and most left-wing member yeah. of the group in this. So all of the stuff we've had to do so far, it just, it's, it must be the easiest whipping job in the world, actually. I mean, you know, we, there's, nobody gets, there's nobody steps out of line, literally, because it, it hasn't presented itself. Now, it might, you know, in a year or two years down the line, you might see differences emerge. Yeah. But at the moment, we've got, we've, we've got none of that. I mean, we don't even, to be honest, there's not that much internal debate and discussion within the group, because that, things appear to be self-evident. Yeah, I mean, this, that, that is uh, clearly, in terms of um, campaigning against it, is a huge strength that the SNP have, and that makes it very difficult for your opponents. In the long term, that could become a weakness, though, doesn't it? If it appears that there's a, a, a lack of internal dialogue, it can look <coughs> like a dictatorship. Like, do you think that will, in time, change? Do you think the, the wings will sort of find themselves? Well, it, it is possible that you can have... Democracy and just some, sometimes people do actually agree with each other. So that, yeah, but you know, always, that, <laughs> not, not always, but on the big picture, you know. Uh, and and we we've been talking about big picture items so far. I mean, actually, I mean, the, the word, uh, well, we had the debate on assisted dying, which was a free, a free vote in the House of Commons. Uh, and our group, first of all, we were given a we were given a free, we weren't whipped at all. We were told. You know, if you think this is relevant to your constituents, you can vote on it, but, but you also you can abstain from it if you don't think it's relevant. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was, which I can go into in detail. But, but probably more than half of our group took part in, in, in that vote, and they split pretty much along the same lines as anybody else did. And there were powerful debates and contributions yeah. on both sides. So in some of those moral arguments, moral points, yeah. uh, you, you, you will get differences, and there's no reason why that's... That's not a political problem for anyone. Yeah. I mean, those differences exist in other parties. But on the big stuff, in the fact that we, you know, we want uh, to democratise our political structures, we want to have strong public services, we want a broadly speaking social democratic approach of taking from the rich and giving to the poor, all those big ticket items, we're, we're as one. So how's it work then? Because obviously Nicola Sturgeon is the leader of the SNP, Angus Robertson is the leader in Westminster. Yeah. Who, who is the most powerful in terms of, from your position, who's the person that on a day-to-day -day basis, is the most influential on, on, on your role? Well, the most powerful person in the SNP is the leader, obviously. I mean, Nicola's the, the, the leader, so she is the overall leader of the party, and what we're doing in Westminster is part of the operation of the party. But on a day-to-day -day basis, the group in Westminster pretty much have carte blanche to do what we want and to make up our own, uh, you know, take our own decisions, have our own strategy and things, and Angus is the the leader of the group in, in Westminster. And, I mean, they, they talk. But, to be honest, it's pretty much it's pretty much delegated authority, really. I mean, I don't think the, the colleagues in, in Edinburgh aren't that preoccupied with some of the debates we get up to yeah. in, the, in the House of Parliament. So it's fully devolved, uh, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it just... I, 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 with all these things, and as someone who's worked in politics before, it always struck me that the moment at which a leader is weakest is when their MPs aren't near them, geographically. And I think Blair always got into trouble when he was away because he couldn't have the proximity with his MPs to 
to, uh, to have message discipline and to put those lines out. And I just thought, despite the, 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 the very impressive unity of the SNP group, it might present a problem for Nicola Sturgeon because occasionally you would get a disconnect and you would have a, not going native, but a group of people saying, well, she doesn't understand it, she's not down here having to deal with the day-to-day. -day. Do you think those tensions don't exist at all? No, they, they, I mean, they, they really don't. I mean, like, for example, the, I mean, there are some members of our group who are less keen on the Progressive Alliance idea than others. Huh? So when you talk about because, Progressive Alliance, who would that be with? Oh, with the Labour Party, principally. Right? Yeah. I mean, we can talk about the Labour Party, but, you know, <laughs> but now that they're beginning to sort themselves out and the dust is settling, we, we hope there's more prospect. I mean, there was some, some been some good alliances in the last two weeks, so the, we think there's more prospect for building it. There still leads the Tories with the majority, but, you know, if, if, if you've got a united opposition, it psychologically it begins to change the, the character of, yeah. of the debate, and I think they take less chances. They, you know, they'll they'll be less likely to try and get away with things. So, so it's important for us to build a united opposition, and to do that, and and, and that means that we will play a role. Like today, I you know I voted against, uh, well, I voted for the Labour resolution on junior doctors' contracts, saying that you know they needed to be revised, need more money spent on on that area for junior doctors, and the Tories are saying no, no, we can, you know, they're going to work seven days a week for no extra money and all the rest of it. So we got into that debate. We voted solidly with the Labour Party in that, even though it only applied to England and Wales. And the reason we did so is because, well, twofold. One, that we know that if it went through, then when we get into discussions about the Scottish budget, they're not going to say, well, hey, guys, we'll give you some extra money to treat your doctors more generously. So it has a real economic impact. But also we know that psychologically, in terms of the management of the health service, whatever happens here tends to start spilling across the border. So there's, you know, if you're going to repel an idea, so that's what I mean by being part of a, yeah. a progressive alliance. Now, to be perfectly frank, some of my colleagues are less keen on that idea than I am. Right? And you know, they've, they've been bruised through many uh, battles over the years, yeah, yeah. particularly with the Labour Party. Uh, you know, and, and, and there's, a lot of, uh, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of things to be buried there, a lot of hatchets to be buried before peace will break out. Uh, and just you know, in, the, in the psychology. So, so, so that's, that, 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 that variation might, might be there, right? But the drive to say, you guys in Westminster are part of a progressive alliance in the UK comes from Nicola. Yeah. That's where that drive comes from. I mean, that is a central party position, ar arranged that in Scotland, but delivered in the UK. Do you think that's something that genuinely reflects where she is ideologically, or is that born of the necessity now of, of the sheer significance of your parliamentary representation? Um, no, because... The position was developed before we had the representation. So, I mean, we, I mean genuinely, we thought, I mean, I thought that there might be a hung parliament uh, and, it, you know, that, that even if the Tories were the largest party, we would have 30 MPs that could do a deal with the Labour Party and get the Tories out. I mean, that, politically, that's where, where I was coming from. Uh, as it happened, all bets are off because the Tories got a damn majority, which, you know, was, was as unexpected as us getting 56 out of 59 MPs, I think. Um, you know, so yeah. So, so, so what was the question? <laughs> well, I was, I was just, I was just wondering whether the, the, this sort of drive for progressive alliance um, is something that Nicola Sturgeon's always believed in, or is something that is necessitated no, right. by the, the sheer amount of MPs you've got there. No, it's not necessitated by the election result because it, it was the, the policy was determined. Um, it is, I think, it is part of of, of of the party's strategy in terms of developing a contemporary view of an independent Scotland. Yeah. Because there are, 
you know, one of the things, one of the things that Labour, in particular, in the Better Together campaign, really threw at us was this: the notion of social solidarity, that somehow an independent Scotland would break old allegiances, uh, old working class allegiances that had been successful on a UK basis of creating the welfare state, of creating the health service, and it, and, it, and, and you know, and, and even of defeating Hitler. I mean, it was you know, so so, and, and that those allegiances were were being rent asunder by independence, and that. That stings. I mean, that is that is an argument that, that we need to confront and and uh, and deal with, particularly when you're dealing with older older working class voters, older Labour voters, and um, and we've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, co ch responding to that challenge. And I think we do have a, a very cogent response to it, which is to say that you know social solidarity doesn't end at Hadrian's Wall. If you know, th there's no reason why people in Scotland are not going to be support people in England in, in endeavours on anything from climate change to, to, to low pay or uh, anti-nuclear or, or, or whatever it is. In fact, you know, we've always sent the buses to the London demos from Edinburgh and Glasgow. We'll continue to do so. And in fact, if we had a self-governing Scotland, which by any estimation would probably be left of centre in, in its character, that could be a force for good within the United Kingdom because that can argue for things and provide an inspiration for progressive forces in, in England and Wales and elsewhere. But is it not a stronger voice if it stays in the United Kingdom? No, because, well, here's the dilemma. If you stay in the United Kingdom, then you have to accept forever a compromise on your ambition. You know, I mean, like, and I don't just mean in terms of statehood. I mean in terms of the health service or <laughs> the, the, money, the amount of money we spend on education or how we treat our old people or whatever. Why should the will of people in Scotland be forever compromised by the fact that they've got a right-of-centre demographic in the home counties that always manages to vote them down. That doesn't seem to me to be fair, and that's, that's why the idea of a self-governing Scotland has, has grown to such an extent amongst the previously Labour voting and social democratic spectrum. And you, you would count yourself amongst those. I mean, you were... You were I'm, I'm not even a nationalist. No. <laughs> I, I, I knew she can guess the accent. I'm not even Scottish. I'm here, I feel a bit of a fraud here being the Scottish National Party. Right. I'm in the party, but that's... But you, but you were Assistant General Secretary, Labour's Assistant yeah. General Secretary, uh, uh, in 1994 under John Smith. That's right. Um, you were... On sacked, under, sacked under Tony Blair. Sacked under Tony Blair. What were the circumstances of that? Oh, I, well, I, I, I can't, couldn't possibly divulge. <laughs> Well, no, the circumstances were, I mean, it was, you know, when, the, when Blair took over the, 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 the party, the whole, the ethos of it changed. I mean, it, and, and it, was, it was partly a political shift. It was partly a drive to get this mythical Middle England and the, you know, the Daily Mail readership onto the side of New Labour. Yeah. And a preparedness to actually ditch, well, or to take for granted the historical support amongst working class voters. So it was, that was a paradigm shift uh, politically. But there was also a cultural change as well. I mean, it did, it did matter which dinner parties you got invited to. And quite often it wasn't a matter of, you know, uh, will you jump? It was a matter of how high, you know. So, and, it, and Blair, Blair brought in this ethos in the Labour Party, which was, you know, very much about whether your face fitted and, and who, you were, who you were friends with and stuff like that, which, was, which, which as we can see, ended up being pretty unhealthy. Uh, and I was one of the early victims of that, uh, of that pooch. But I wear it now like a badge of honour, and uh, you referred to my history in the Stand Comedy Club. The only reason the Stand Comedy Club exists is because I took the quite generous redundancy payment 
that they gave me and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and turned it into a comedy club. Uh, which is Ed, Edinburgh is still there now and uh, clubs in Glasgow and, and Newcastle have followed. Um, how did Cross you border, you know. So, so. Indeed, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just about, technically. Um, how did you find the transition from, from politics to then running comedy clubs? Um, well, do you know what? And, and back again. Indeed. Uh, I mean, I, I, I sort of half joke that, that 20 years ago I was a full-time political official and I started a comedy club as a hobby and now I've gone full circle. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I still go down to stand at the weekend if I can, so, but it's, a, it's on a voluntary basis and now full-time in politics. Uh, actually, um, do you know what? There's, there's a big overlap of the skills required for both. There really is. I mean, I mean I'm not a stand-up, by the way. I've never performed uh, comedy. I've to, I've, I always organise other people to do that for me <laughs> and uh, to tell the jokes I can't do myself. But, but, but the idea of running something and running a business and, uh, and promoting it, very, very similar to, to politics. I mean, you know, getting, getting a bunch of people together to decide on a campaign and then producing the leaflets and the, and, and, and the physical campaign... Not a lot of different from working out a comedy program and then going out to promote that and try and sell tickets. I mean, it's similar, similar thing in many ways. And actually, I think one of the reasons why I found becoming an MP uh, less, less challenging than, than some of my colleagues was, that, was not because I've been involved in politics in the past, but because I've been involved in business. So, you know, I, like, for example, we're all very keen to do the right thing. So a, a lot of my colleagues, they, they took months to recruit staff because they were putting in, they were getting the job descriptions right and of signed course, off. They yeah. wanted to advertise them. They wanted to do everything absolutely right. They, you know, I had people working for me within ten days because I just said, "Will you come and do this for three months while we sort it out?" Yeah. You know, so so sometimes if you're running a business, you you can't wait three months to decide what you're going to do. You have to make things happen, and there's a dynamic there which I've found very useful in, in adjusting to this new job. One of the things that the Labour Party struggled with at the last election was, was its relationship with business, uh, almost as a proxy for its relationship with ambition. So you're uh, a sort of left-wing guy who was effectively pro-business. You run a you set up a business yourself. W where is the SNP in terms of business policy, say compared to Labour? Because it feels in Scotland actually corporation tax is quite low. That is something that economically you could say you're centre right on. I wouldn't say centre right. I mean we're sort of. I mean we're we're. I, I'm an old-fashioned mixed economy guy. I mean, I'm like, I am like a 1960s Billy Brandt social democrat. Okay? I believe that there's a public sector and a private sector. The two can work together. There are some things you should only do in the private sector, like running a comedy club. <laughs> and, there are, and there are some things you should only do in the public sector, like running a health service. Okay? Uh, so, I, I, but I think both can, can cooperate and both can be strong and you can support both. And I don't necessarily see... A contradiction between between the two, uh, and in fact, I also believe that it's right and proper for government to sometimes take action and put money behind uh, private sector initiatives to get them off the ground or to help mm. them. And we we should be stepping in to save our steel steelworks in Lanarkshire and Redcar and other places at the moment, and looking at a, a longer term plan to protect British steel. Uh, but if you say there's, it's not the right role for government to intervene, this is a private thing, then you vacate the responsibility for doing anything about that and you just betray all the people that were in that industry. So I don't have a, I don't have a problem, but that, that said, I want to have a strong private sector so that it can pay its contribution to the community. And actually, you know, we had a group called Business for Scotland in the referendum, which was, you know, pretty much small business people, to be honest. They were, you know, running companies the same size as, 
as mine, but there's a few bigger ones as well. And I swear to God, I went to some of their meetings, and it was like, you know, it could have been a meeting of the Labour Party almost. I mean, it was, a, it was, was that boring? Well, no, but the, <laughs> the, the lines they were coming out with, I mean, these were people who, who had made money, who had built up a business, but they were, they were proud to stand up and say, yeah, we're bringing in the living wage, mm -hmm. or, you know, or, or, or we're funding this community initiative. And they didn't see, they didn't see a contradiction. And it's, it's because of the legacy of Thatcher, I think, that we have this contradiction here. I mean, other countries in Europe, they don't see that this contradiction. You know, in Scandinavia, they don't have this, yeah. you know, private sector bad, public sector good, or, or, or vice versa, as the yeah. Tories believe here. But a lot of people on the left are naturally mistrusting of business, aren't they? And it's something that exists in the Labour Party on quite a grand scale, and I'm sure in certain corners of the SNP it will do as well, but you're a very pro-business sort of guy. I mean, do you encounter sometimes that sort of left-wing mistrust of, of business? Well, I, I, again, I'm, I'm trying hard to find the, the left and right of the, the SNP, <laughs> but I mean, I... I'd like to hope, you know, given that I'm basically a Republican Social Democrat, I'd like, I would like to hope that I'm sort of still on the left of, of politics. I've always, I've always felt at ease being on the left of politics for the last 40 years, so I, I hope I've not, I'm certainly nowhere near becoming a Daily Mail reader. So, uh, <laughs> so, so well, I, Corbyn reads The Sun now. Well, He's I, been pictured with The Sun today, It's always Corbyn. interesting to see what others say about you. Isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so, I... I, I, I I don't know, it's for other, other people to judge. I think I'm on the left. In terms of the positions I take on most things, on, on, on the economy and the public sector and a whole range of social uh, issues, I mean, I'm, I'm on the liber libertarian left, uh, you know, but you've got to pick your fights in, the, in, in this game. I mean, I mean you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be standing up advocating the removal of the, the monarchy anytime soon, <laughs> even though I might believe in it. Uh, you know, so, yeah. So, so, and, and, and yes, and I've been... I mean, I was a bit of an accidental businessman, to be honest. You know, I did, I did fall into it, and maybe I had such a, I had such a privilege. I had such a, very few people get the chance to do this. I, I was able to turn my hobby into a business. It was something that I was running on a, you know, on a voluntary basis, and I was able to say, well, let's, let's just take this onto a commercial level, but still keeping some of the principles. I mean, you know, the Stand Comedy Club is, is has a good reputation amongst comics. For, for paying fairly, for, for looking after them, for making sure that, you know, they're not interrupted by nutters in the audience and all this. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, it's the, the, I was at the Glasgow stand at the weekend, and it was wonderful. Um, I, I wonder how you feel now about the Labour Party as, as an ex-member, because the left is... Politics is emotional, the left especially so, I think, in, in Britain. Do you ever look at the Labour Party quite wistfully and, you know, almost like an ex... And sort of wonder how it's doing, and sort of still feel some level of affection for it. Um, well, yes, because I mean, uh, you know, I, like, you know, I, I, I live in Edinburgh. I'm, I'm going to die in Edinburgh. I want to see an independent Scotland, but I also have friends and relatives and and, and people throughout uh, the United Kingdom that that I that I know and love, and I, you know, Scotland has got the uh, the. The great into a great position now, where it has where people have got the choice of a left of centre, anti-austerity, fairly radical political movement to choose, and up until recently they didn't have that in England. So I think it's right and proper that the people of England have got a left-wing alternative, and I think uh, we'll wait and see. But I think what's happened, and I think Corbyn, you know, Corbyn's uh, ascent to power, whatever, if if he and John play it correctly, I think possibly. They could create something that is that is popular and radical at, at the same time, 
uh, and 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 maybe even form a government out of it if they, you know, if if their their own people in the PLP don't don't frustrate them. That's where I mean to be honest. In terms of the 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 Labour Party, it is it is really the enemy within, isn't it? I mean, it's not you know. It's not. It's up to them to go as, and as try and deal with perspective. It. Yeah, I mean, I suppose w what obviously helped the SNP was. The I don't think it. I don't think it works in Scotland. By the way, I mean, that that that's the problem. You know, Labour. Uh, I mean, Scotland. Well, doesn't Corbyn. Need, well, the Labour. I mean, Scotland doesn't need a Labour Party anymore because I think the SNP has just taken that taken over that role. When I when I was a full time Labour official in Scotland, twelve percent of the UK membership were in Scotland because we punched above our weight because it was you know better history. So twelve percent. That figure today is three percent, you know. So actually, Scotland's now not that important, I would argue, to the Labour Party, uh, and Labour's not that important in Scotland. I mean, they're languishing at what eighteen to twenty percent in the polls in Scotland, um, just just above the Conservatives. So, but I'd like to see I'd like to see the Tories out of power in England. So I would be happy to try and support Labour to get achieve that. Obviously, what helped drive the, the significant SNP support was the referendum. Mm -hmm. Corbyn's probably not going to have an event like that, where he can have a sort of <coughs> two-year PR campaign for his central belief. He's going to have to do it in a much harder way. Um, do you think without the referendum, the SNP would still have got the amount of seats that you got in the election? Uh, well, probably not. To be, I, mean, I don't want to avoid to quit. Probably not, but, but, but that's a really hypothetical question, isn't it? I mean, if, if there hadn't have been, there was a referendum for a reason, so you'd have to go back and say, well, if those things hadn't happened and all the rest of it. So, it, I mean, the referendum was a culmination of a process that started really in 2007. Uh, and, and then when Alex Salmond formed a majority government in Scotland in, in 2011, suddenly it was game on because, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and we, we had the referendum. I think, the, for me, the great thing about the referendum was that um, it was a a process of, of political um, emancipation in many ways. I mean, because once you ask somebody, do you want to live in an independent country, that provokes so many other questions, doesn't it? I mean, like, well, what sort of country? What would it be like? You know, who'd be in charge? <laughs> you know, would I, would I have any more money? You know, would, would this still be happening to me when my kids did this? So, so, and all of those questions were just buzzing. And every pressure group, every charity, every, a lot of businesses, began to think and imagine, well, what might this be like? Yeah. And you've got this tremendous explosion. And, and all over the place, people were, were, were understanding that politics is too important to leave to politicians. It's about them. It's about controlling their lives. And it was just phenomenal, the explosion. I mean, you know, I, I was walking through the park, and somebody was just having a, suddenly a, a rally just started. And somebody stood up in a beatbox and started speaking, and people gathered around, and there was a rally. And, and you know, and, and things were being organised on Facebook with half a day's notice, and it was it was a real, really fantastic uh, time to go through. And then everyone was just so gutted at the results on the 18th of September, and I, I mean, I was in a sort of fugue state for that weekend, you know, just, you know. Uh, and then the mist began to settle, and people began to realise that, my God, 45% of the people have just voted to secede from the fifth most powerful nation on earth. Mm. Despite everything, despite every other political party, all of the big business, every newspaper bar one, the BBC, everything else saying, you know, and all the love bombing, of course, from relatives, right? Which didn't really work. <laughs> but all of that's happening, and still 45% of the people say, we're going to give it a go, you know? 
that was a remarkable uh, political fervour, and that is what then carried through to give the SNP its result in May. So during that referendum campaign, and I, I followed it very closely, and I, I was in Glasgow on referendum day, and it was one of the most remarkable days I can remember in politics. It was like there was a, a carnival atmosphere on the streets. Um, and that was the first point, because the polling had been consistent that no were ahead, and then there was that period within that fortnight where there was a genuine wobble, and it really felt that, the, that all that hard work was starting to pay off and the message was starting to get through. Did at any point you genuinely believe that you were going to win? You know, even on polling day, I was talking to people in the, in, in, in the polling station, and I, did, I sort of did, but I wouldn't let myself believe it. You know, you always want to think the worst and then you can be nice, pleasantly surprised rather than expect something and be disappointed. So I, I just never, you know, it was very, very tense that it, that the whole day and, and, and into the night. But I, I don't think I ever, no, I don't think I ever allowed myself to believe that we were going to win. I mean, I thought the campaign peaked just a week too soon, mm. almost. I mean, that poll that came out showing us 51 to 49 ahead if that had to come out on the final weekend before polling day, then the other side wouldn't have had the chance to respond to it. It would have been more of a fill-up, and people would have, you know, believed in it. I think, but but then I suppose whatever. You, I mean, but then you get the the euphoria. I mean, it's always more exciting to win after you've tasted defeat, isn't it? So you you lose that referendum, and then you get the tidal wave, the tsunami on election night, where actually, in terms of personal. Like, I don't know, you've, you've gone through a period where you fought in a referendum campaign, you weren't even a member of the SNP at the time, you joined the SNP, and then, what I can't understand is, why haven't they selected a candidate in a city like Edinburgh until after the referendum? Oh, well, they put everything on hold for the referendum. I mean, the, the SNP just suspended itself, it didn't have yeah. branch meetings for two years. They just said, right, we're, we're doing nothing apart from getting involved in the US campaign. Absolutely not. <laughs> they didn't meet as a political party for two years. So, um, so yeah, they, they were very much playing catch-up uh, in terms of the the selection process. I mean, that's that that has, we're in good time for for next year. Um, so yes, so the the process was just put put on hold. I mean, in part, in part, not to detract from from the campaign because you may well know that selection contests can sometimes consume a lot of political energy. Um, but but also, I think because well, if it had been yes, that would have had serious implications for for what we do next. Of course, you know so. So I think people wanted to get that result done and dusted first. So, yeah. So I was, I, by about the Sunday, I was sort of, you know, prepared to talk to people about the result. And, you know, you go online and you see all the stuff in Facebook and all the rest of it, and 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 people emailing you. And there's this big online conversations taking place about what do we do next? All these people. I mean, and the SNP at this point, on the 18th of September, 25,000 members. 25,000 members on the 18th of September. So there's this discussion going on, and six weeks later, the SNP has 100,000 members without at any stage ever asking anyone to join it. Yeah. There was no recruitment campaign. <laughs> Nobody said, join the SNP. There was this sort of collective telepathy going on that people just said, well, we've got to do something, and the most obvious thing to do is to join the SNP because that provides a vehicle to take us to the next stage. How do you feel, though, about... Because it's very difficult, isn't it, once you've said it's once in a generation or once in a lifetime, as I think... Nicholas I never said it. Nicholas Sturgeon had. Um, uh, no, I think it was Alex that 
I've seen it on YouTube it says once in a lifetime. I think it was a year before the referendum, Nicholas Sturgeon. We have says. short generations. We don't live like <laughs> <laughs> but then, But that's the point. Is that how do you sort of get out of that sort of thing? Because obviously there's... It's easy. Things change. But not much has Things changed change. since last yeah, year. The world it? changes and you respond to different circumstances. I mean, nobody thought, nobody thought the SNP was going to suddenly get, you know, 100. I mean, we have... The number of members of the SNP, if that was a UK-wide party, it would be about 1.4 million people. Yeah. I mean, it's massive. You know, every person, every 40th person that you walk along must be a member of the SNP, in average. And to get 56, I mean, you know, and we're actually running, we, all the opinion polls now for the last six months have shown us with over 50% popular support. Mm. So this is a different ball game now. So you can't, you can't just say, oh, well, we'll do the same things we said we would do two years ago. But then, this, but then in terms of just handling the politics of the population, there might be some people who, just out of fairness, even if they did vote yes, might say, it feels a little bit too soon to go oh, I agree with that. and have that debate again. Oh, look, it is, it is too soon. We had the discussion just over a year ago. We had a vote. We respect that vote. That, you know, that stays, OK? So the, the, no one is trying to overturn that or undermine it or whatever. And in fact, the way I look at this is, you know, there are lots of people who voted yes are still yes. Right? And they're the ones who are saying, when are we going to have another referendum on this? I mean, and, and in part, there's a, there's a moral obligation as a politician to try and respond to that and say, well, OK, if you guys have got this demand, we need to, we need to maybe ask the question. But there's a much more powerful moral imperative as a politician, which is to respond to the people whose mind is changing. If you've got people who a year ago voted no, and now they're saying, actually... Because, either because of the way things have panned out or because we didn't get the promises we were delivered or because I've just changed my mind, they're now saying, actually, we are yes. The big thing you have to do in politics is to respond to the people who change their mind, not the people who still think the same way. And it would be a denial of their democratic right if, if somebody said, well, you can think what you want, but you're never going to get a chance to do this because we had that discussion and we're not having it for 25 years. That would, I mean, that would, that would undermine political discourse and the integrity of politics in this country. But, but when you've said it's once in a generation, shouldn't that be respected? Doesn't that, would it not be to undermine discourse to go back on that? No, I don't think so. Look, people make comments, I didn't make those comments, by the way, but some people did make comments about, well, nobody ever said once in a lifetime, unless we were, unless we were quite old. Um, so, uh, I think Nicholas Sturgeon, there's a clip from on YouTube which says, once in a generation, some would say once in a lifetime. Mm, okay, it's a clip I've not seen, yeah. but... Um, you know, but the point is that things th things change, right? And you know, and I, I, you kind of a you kind of a referendum next year. Uh, you probably can't have one for about at least five years, or yeah. whatever. So we need to get down and try and make the the situation work as best we can at the moment. And part of what we're trying to do is to is, is to get more devolution to the Scottish government, so that people do have a bit more control over their own affairs. And of course, there's a that's a moot point because some people would say oh well that'll that'll remove the uh, the demands for independence and other people say well actually when well, you give people a little bit of power they tend to just want, <laughs> want a little bit more so so but i mean but we're progressing along that path but there comes a point where if consistently i mean and, and it wasn't nicola that said the 60 percent for for a year thing i think that was john curtis actually so but but there comes a point where if manifestly most of the population are saying we would like to have a vote on this it becomes illegitimate for any political party to hold them back. And if the SNP were to try to do that, then the SNP would be out in its ear and they'd, get, they'd vote in a, you know, a new radical party or whatever. I have no, no idea what it would be, but 
you know, the people eventually will catch up with you. You can't deny them an opportunity to have this say forever. But what if, what if you have a second referendum and you lose that, despite the opinion polls? Yeah. Then well, what does, is, there, is it then definitely dead and buried, or does it depend on the margin? Like, yeah, there's a, de well, well, there's no, a risk I, to both, isn't there? No, I don't, I mean, so I, like, I mean, I, I don't think you have a never-endum. I don't think, I don't think you, every five or ten years you keep asking the question. Right? Uh, I, I think we get one more go at this. I don't think we get a third go. I think we get one more go. And the timing is crucial. Well, the timing, it, the timing is crucial, but also, you know, we need, we're not going to, I, I would rather not ask a question that I didn't know the answer to. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so obviously the degree of public support for the proposition will be a big factor of if and when we have the referendum. But as anyone can point out, uh, I'm surprised you haven't so far, but you know, there are a few unanswered questions from the last one as well. So we need to go back and revisit things like currency and you know, and, and, and uh, Europe, and uh, that'll be interesting, yeah. depending on what happens, of course, with the, the EU vote. Uh, and crucially, we need to try and address some of the concerns that were raised in the no camp last time, because it's not just a matter of saying, oh, we got more than you. I, I mean, I would like, to, if Scotland's going to be a successful independent country, I'd like to get to a situation where, you know, three quarters going, going on everyone is relaxed about that and where you don't have a split country and people. And there are certain groups, partly because of misinformation, but I mean, there are, there, there, I mean, I would say there are three groups that I would want to focus on. One is um, English-born people who now live in Scotland, who still, who, not all of them, but some of them were susceptible to an argument saying, oh, well, this is just about identity, this is just a nationalist question, and it, and it really wasn't, but we need to do more to encourage those people to believe that it's their country too and it's their future too. Secondly, European nationals, um, we, like, like London, we have a lot of them, and we witness many instances of the Better Together campaign trying to tell Polish people to vote no, because if they voted yes, Scotland would have to leave the EU and they'd be sent back home, uh, which in all sorts of ways was just nonsense, but we need to address that. And the third group is probably pensioners. I mean, all the demographics... Show, I mean, if you, if you just had a referendum... If you had had a referendum on the 18th of September last year where only people under 65 could vote, we would, have, we would be independent by now. Okay, so the... I mean, in, all, in every age cohort now, apart from the over 65s, yes, has a majority. And one of the reasons for that is because that's the generation that still remember the good old days there was when the United young... Kingdom was a good thing. But I think there was, was it 18 to 24, and then there was, there was a sort of a second younger age band where actually no was ahead. Weren't ahead at depth, the lead depth. And it's actually hard to quantify because we don't know how people voted, so this is done on opinion poll, which, yeah. as we know from the last general election, isn't always the, the, the lead the depth. Measure. Well, it, it, I think they did 16 to 18 year olds because they were they, that was the first time they'd ever polled that, yeah. and and actually at the to start the campaign, they were very much in the no camp. Yeah. They swung almost completely to be like 65, 70% yes. But isn't there a danger? The, the, then the 18 to 24s were less than that, but they were still slightly ahead for yes. But is, is that, does that, do you then presume that everyone over 65 will effectively then die out and then you're left with people who are <laughs> no that just get older and stay no? Or is there something about ageing, as with certain people who start no. out as Labour and end up Conservative, that actually... No matter where they are on that scale, the moment they become 65, they're naturally uh, more likely to vote. No, I don't. Well, no, I don't think it is. I think I think in this question, yeah. age is very important because because age defines the perspective people have on the debate. If you're asking somebody who's in their 70s what they think about Britain, 
you know, they have memories of the war or just after the war. They have memories of good things happening, of, of, of you know, the memories actually of, of the decolonialization and, and the inter positive international things. I mean, so the, those are all good memories. So, so those are things when, when being British and, and the United Kingdom was, was, was changing itself and changing the world and they remember that. Yeah. People post-79 do not have that perception of the United Kingdom or of the relationship between Scotland and England. It's an entirely different perspective, and that's, that's why age is significant. Do you ever, I mean, you, you spend a fair amount of time in London now. You were on Hackney Borough Council years ago, back yeah. in 1990. Um, do you ever sort of walk around London and think, sometimes and think, oh, I actually quite like the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not so bad, you know? Do you ever well, have those feelings? No. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, well, you... that's not to say I don't like places, right? I mean, I, I got a club in Newcastle. I love spending time in Newcastle. Great, fantastic people. Right? So, and, and I, I like Londoners. Yeah. That's really not a problem. In fact, we get on better with the left-wing Labour London MPs probably than, than anybody else. So, <laughs> so it's, not a, it's not a matter of, of, of liking the people or liking yeah. the place or liking things about the place. It's a matter of politics and, yeah. and of whether or not you... Ultimately, you're a Democrat and you believe that power should be exercised at the lowest possible level that it can be. And I think self-government for Scotland offers an opportunity to let the people who live in Scotland control their own lives, and that can only be a good thing for them and for the people of England, in my view. But do you not sometimes walk around part or wherever and just think, I don't want to, I don't want to end this? You know, maybe I'm too emotional, but when I remember I went to Scotland a lot as a child, and I remember what I it was a stunning country anyway, but I loved the fact that even though I was from Nottingham, I could sort of feel like I had... To, more than just a connection to it, you know, that it was sort of part of the same country, and I quite liked that notion. We're not going anywhere. No, but... All right? No, but the way people use this term separation, for example, it's as if we're going to, like, take a, a, a JCB and, you know, dig a line along Hadrian's Wall and float Scotland out into the North Sea. That, that, that's Is that policy? No. That, <laughs> no, that's, that's really not going to happen, right? We're all going to be part of Britain. Yeah, we say that now, but things change, Tommy. Well, we're, we're all going to be... Even, even if we were... You know, there's no country in this world except, God bless, North Korea tries its best, but there is, <laughs> there is no country that is completely independent of any other country. And we aspire to interdependence, but we aspire also to self-government. And it's a very positive internationalist view that's, that's driving the SNP. And part of that is making sure there isn't in any manifest way a border between England and Scotland. You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna put roadblocks on the on the M6 or you know the, dig up the real <laughs> I mean, you, you, you won't notice by and large. And you also won't notice the welcome you can get in Scotland. In fact, you know I, I, I think Scottish independence does two things. At one fell swoop, it it gets the chip off the shoulder of a lot of Scots, right, who, who, who frankly, for far too long, have just blamed the English for everything that's wrong with their own country and, and think and, as a way of psychologically yeah. abdicating any responsibility. And but apart the other, from SNP but, members. No, no, but the other... <laughs> but the other no, no, you won't find those people in the SNP. You'll find a lot of them in the Labour Party. <laughs> you um, will, actually. Yeah. The, uh, Gordon Brown was one of them. But the other, the other type of person who just suddenly has the, the you know, feet cut from under them is, you know, it, it, is, is, are the Green Ink Brigade, the Daily Mail readers in the Shire counties, who think that we're all about England subsidising Scotland and all a bunch of, you know, they're sucking the, the country dry. I mean, so, so both of those elements suddenly just have nowhere to go with independence because, and, and you, you do what 
Norway or Denmark or any other small northern European country does, you, you just become a, a contemporary self-governing country that's at ease with itself and at ease with its neighbours. Not a problem. I think, I think tourism between our countries will, will, will expand and improve between, with, with independence. I think transport will expand and improve, and I think we'll get on much better than we do now. I don't think I've heard a better argument for independence ever uh, for, for, for any nation. Um, do you sort of, uh, and this, I mean, it, it's not something you should necessarily have an opinion on, but you've got Plaid Cymru, which is ostensibly a left-wing nationalist party. You've got the SNP that is, says it's a left-wing nationalist party. England doesn't really have an English left-wing party that is pro-independence. Well... No, but maybe the Labour Party could come to be that because, I mean, you know, look, you can, I really get annoyed with people who uh, are against independence or devolution on the grounds that the United Kingdom is perfect, right? That this sort of 18th century political construct is as far as democracy goes, albeit amended slightly for the Irish in 1926, you know, but, 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 but I mean, the, 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 that's it, and it can't be improved upon. Of course it can. And the, over the last 20 years, we've had devolution to, to Wales and, and Scotland and Northern Ireland, which I think is, is an improvement of the governance of these islands. Mm. It does, however, as I said last week in the debate on, on evil, um, it leaves a conundrum for the people of England. They, the governance of England has, is not as good now as the governance of Scotland, I, I'd argue. The Tory response to that is to try and make the House of Commons be two things. One, to be a United Kingdom Parliament, but also to be effectively an English Parliament. And that's, that's a big problem for them, because you can only do that if you have two classes of MPs in the same chamber. What they should have done was to look at, well, maybe there should be an English legislature. Maybe there should be English regional assemblies, which have got legislative powers. Maybe we should devolve some lawmaking powers to some of the existing local government structures. They could have done all of that. They should at least get a debate going about it, because I can't think the people of England are going to be satisfied by ever, for forever, with the current arrangements that, that we have. No, I think you're right. I think there's a growing discontentment within England of <coughs> where England sits within the sort of devolved framework and just in general about what the English identity is. Well, yeah, that, that is a problem, I think, because actually in Scotland, the one thing the referendum was not about was identity. If there's any nation on God's earth that has a surfeit of icons and things that remind them of their identity. It's Scotland, so uh, we don't need any more jimmywigs or, or kilts. or any, And that really didn't feature in the campaign at all because Scotland, ha Scotland has an identity. It understands its identity. It's got, a, it's got a culture. It's got a history. It's got its own separate legal system and education system. So it, it's actually already got all those things. What it doesn't have is the power to run those things. Um, in England, there is a problem, I think, because nobody knows quite what it means to be English. And, and, I, mean, I'm, and I like some of the work that Billy Bragg and others have done to try and develop a, a positive yeah. notion. Progressive of, patriotism, he calls well, it, Billy Bragg. Yes, but I mean, no, I mean, the SNP, in as much as it's a nationalist party, is a very sort of, it's, it's nationalism light. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very <laughs> civic-orientated community spirit in nationalism. It's, anybody can be a part of it. There's no... There's no ethnic divide, there's no identity divide. And maybe somebody needs to do that for the people of England and give them a 21st century notion of what it means to be English and a pride in being English that isn't about, you know, ex excluding people and isn't about separating yourself off from other people. 
I think you're the man to do it, Tommy. You've, 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 you're from Ireland, you've, you've gone to Scotland and you, you've brought it there. Can't you come down to England and st- st- set up the ENP and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and talk in, in such poetic terms about English nationalism? Well, I've got a job already. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> For the time being. So, so the, that wasn't a no. Um, <laughs> Look, hey, I'm happy. And we know how we know what you think of people who say no. To the debate. <laughs> um, right, let's throw it open uh, to the audience. Uh, we'll, we'll raise the house lights. Just um, put a hand up. We've got a roving mic. We'll take uh, three or four questions. So, yes, the fellow at the bar seems very passionate. Any chance Just, of another beer while it's coming? Can we get Tommy a beer as well? <laughs> Hello. Hello. Uh, my question is about um, how long has the Scotsman been different from the Englishman? Um, bearing in mind. The history, you know, Adam Smith, the Scottish economist, kind of invented capitalism, or what we understand of capitalism. Um, the Scottish being firmly brilliant colonialists, establishing Nova Scotia in Canada. When did they become different from the English? And how is this not just purely political opportunism based on how it's gone since the poll tax, and now you're trying to really cut up the country which established the entire world order? <laughs> that took a turn at the end, didn't it? Crikey! My word. Went down a very different avenue towards the end there. Are we taking a, a number? Or oh, no, we'll, 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 yeah, we need time? to get some of your beer. Yeah, we need to beer. We'll do them one at a time. Or? We'll do them one at a time. Okay, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, uh, you're probably asking the wrong guy, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm neither Scottish nor English, but um, I, look, it's not about. Scottishness versus Englishness. That's not my perspective. That's not what we're arguing. I'm arguing about the right of the people that live in a country, which is Scotland, to be able to govern themselves and to be able to be in charge of their own resources. And I'm telling you that they want to do that in a way which poses no threat whatsoever to the better governance of these islands as a whole. In fact, it will probably improve the governance of these islands as a whole. And we are looking, I think, at a future in the middle 21st century if these things happen, which could allow the people of these nations to work together in every much uh, a, a, as a constructive and positive way as they've done in many parts throughout their history. Although, let's be fair, parts of the history of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, aided and abetted by, by the Scots on many occasions as colonial overlords, have been something to be ashamed of rather than something to be proud of. Okay, uh, the gentleman over here. Yeah, I thought the colonial touch on the end was a bit of an odd term to be sort of with you until then. I think I heard you mention earlier that you were a, um, a uh, Republican and a Democrat. So uh, the obvious question is, why is the current SNP policy to retain the Queen and the monarchy as head of state? Shouldn't a modern self-governing independent nation have an, have an elected head of state? I, mean, I thought that was going to be a joke I, about American I, I, I the Irish model. Look, um, it's a very fair point. The thinking behind the white paper when it was published, which was the, basically what the question of the referendum was based upon, and which said the Queen would remain head of state in an independent school, the thinking was to try and do this one thing... Oh, thanks very much. To try and do Cheers this one stage at a time. At least the thinking from people from my Republican perspective. So that rather than get the question of self-government or national autonomy confused with whether you're a monarchist or republican, uh, that it would be better to, do, to, first of all, get the ability to decide constitutionally, and then at a later date, then say, well, should we now look at a new constitution and should we consider becoming a republic? So, you know, 
to be honest, the, so that that's my answer as a as a, a Republican within the SNP, and I think I, I guess I'm speaking for for that wing of of the party that if you know that the same with the pound actually, frankly, it's the same with the currency. Right? Yeah. That we were trying, you know, because the, the argument was that if you voted yes, the day after, nothing would change. All that would change would be your ability to control the future. So you then begin the process of change. Uh, so voting yes was about you know taking the power, and you then had several years. Well, you had a lifetime to exercise it. Could during, be during which I hope, I mean, during which I hope we would win the argument for a. Uh, for a republic, and I think the, the omens for that are probably, I think Scotland would become a republic before, before Britain would. <laughs> I think that's probably <laughs> fair. Um, could that be perhaps then, just as it is for the Tories, it is Europe, could that be the sort of fault line with the SNP of those that are obviously all pro-independence, but some actually that are sort of pro-monarchy and some that are pro-republic, or pro-pound or pro-euro or whatever? Uh, no. Uh, well, I, 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 you, you may be asking the wrong person, but I mean, I've, I've been pretty active in the party for a year, met a lot of people, spoken at a lot of events, had a lot of these discussions. I don't see any sense that that's a schism at all. I mean, I think people are pretty much eyes on the prize, focused on getting one step forward and then building on the next one. Okay. Any more questions on the ground floor? Are there any ladies that would like to ask questions that have all been fellas so far? Well, you've got long hair, so that'll count. Um, <laughs> Yes, the chap at the back. Um, my question's about um, education, really, and about the... Is, is a yes vote as good as any, as any vote? I mean, I've got friends who are saying it wasn't a nationalist um, issue in terms of the, the yes vote for Scotland, but I've got friends who literally voted on the back of them being a Scotsman and wanting to be away from, you know, everything that is to do with the nationalist ideal of Scotland and freedom and the rest. And should there be, what's your opinion on there being some kind of political um, education? I mean, I know many people in their mid-twenties and who have no idea. I mean, I've been sat here and I've had the greatest education in terms of um, what it is to be, uh, what is your ideas on Scottish independence, but through the entire referendum, I can guarantee the amount of people around me who have no idea about any of this. So should there be some kind of formal establishment in schools? We have, you know, religious education, we have some, we had even the whole um, community um, classes, but in terms of politics as what it is to be political, um, where do you stand on that? Can I ask, were you here or were you in Scotland for the referendum? I was here. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think, I think one of the problems with, I mean, what was bizarre, I think, about the referendum was that the, the London establishment, and I mean no disrespect, I mean, but the... the oh, I'm not part of it. The body... <laughs> The body politics centred in London, the, the metropolitan political elite, pretty, woke up pretty late to what was happening. Yeah. I mean, it was only with those polls that showed things narrowing in the final month that suddenly people thought, oh, this might happen. And yeah, what does that mean? And it, so up until, for, I mean, this had been going for three years, remember, in, in, in Scotland. And it was, it was amazing how little discussion, actually, what's amazing is that how little coverage there was of the SNP until we won... The May election, it was when we had MPs at Westminster that people began to take us seriously and give us, give us coverage. So, so the perspective was rather different um, in, in Scotland itself. There was a lot of uh, education going on, informal and, and formal. All, most, pretty much every school 
had a had a had a had a mock referendum, you know, where where they had people argue, the kids would argue yes and no. There was there was a lot of abusing each other on Twitter. It's just not the real thing. <laughs> and all the parties, to the credit, and, all, and both of the campaigns supported that process. I mean, it was a it was a festival of democracy in many ways. Mm. It was it was quite un, like nothing I've seen in my fifty six year old lifetime. To be honest, it was remarkable. Um, so so that was it. And I think there are things we can learn from that process that would be good to inject into the education system and the curriculum throughout the United Kingdom. Uh, so I, 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 hope, I hope that will, that will happen. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the weaknesses in our system is the lack of formal political uh, education that, 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 that kids get. You know, it's not, I think, be, you know, I think knowing how to vote and knowing what parties stand for should be part of the coming of age for, in, in a society. And I don't know quite how you do it, but we certainly need to do a lot more of it. I suppose there's citizenship classes, aren't there? I mean, I'm too old to have had them, but I, I, I gather that, that sort of instills in people the knowledge of what a borough council is and what a county... I mean, it's not that exciting, but, you know, it's the sort of information that people should have. Would anyone on the balcony like to ask oh, yeah. a question? I forgot there was a balcony. <laughs> anyone up there? Someone's going to come running up the stairs. So if not... Cheers, Julian. Sorry. Would anyone up there... Yes! Just wait for the... Um, uh, would anyone else down here like to ask questions before we come back now? Okay, over there. Oh, sorry. Hi. Uh, what do you think would happen to England if Scotland became independent? Would it be never-ending Tory governments? Or do you think? What, what do you think? What do you think the deal is there? Okay. Well, well, it's a good question because that is exactly one of the arguments that was put um, against voting yes in Scotland that we would somehow forever be condemning the people of. England to a sort of Tory permafrost that would, that would, <laughs> that, that, that would never melt. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's true. I mean, actually, the facts don't bear it out because there's, I think there's only been... There was the period um, 74 to 79 uh, with the, the Labour minority government, and even then only for a couple of years. And there was another... I think it was 64 to 66. Those are the only years since the Second World War where the government of the day in Westminster has depended on Scottish votes and hasn't had a majority in England. So actually, I mean, like, you know, the people that were saying that were members of the political party that had just won three general elections in a row mm. in England. And what they did with the victory is a different matter, but, but they had, you know, Labour had won three elections in a row, getting a majority of votes and seats in England, as well as the United Kingdom. So it is possible uh, for a left-of-centre party to win in England without Scottish votes. That's just a, an empirical fact. But it does depend, I think, on, on you know, what your parties do and how they present arguments. I mean, I think one of the things the SNP has shown is that it is possible, if you stick to your guns, to build support for a political idea. Now, I'm not just talking independence here. Every SNP candidate had no to Trident on their manifesto. And I think partly as a result of the campaigning in that and the iteration of that, uh, you've got a situation where there is majority public support, overwhelming majority public support in Scotland to cancel Trident, or not to go forward with the renewal. I mean, it's, there's, there's a, a growing support in, in England for it too, but, but the reason why it exists in Scotland is because a lot of us have been campaigning for a very long time to argue the case. Uh, and, you know, there's no, there's no genetic reason why people in Scotland are automatically going to listen to that argument more than their friends or relatives south of the border. It's, it's a matter of how you organise yourself. So, so I think if there are people who worry about the, the future of left of centre politics in 
England, the thing they need to do is get stuck in and be part of it. Um, but the other thing I would come back to is that, you know, we don't always have to move at the pace of the slowest on the left. Sometimes you can let people just run ahead and get up the hill and try and establish something. And that, to my mind, is what we would do in an independent Scotland. And we would achieve things and legislate for things which could be, and you know, at least an illustration, if not an inspiration, for what could happen south of the border as well. I mean, at the minute, for example, you know, at the minute, I think people do, well, they look at it quite negatively because they, they, they say, oh, well, you know, there's no university fees in Scotland or you don't pay prescription charges, but the Daily Mail tells us we're all paying for it, right? It's not true, but that argument's there. Independence takes that argument away. Independence then creates a situation where the Tories have to answer this question. How come education and, 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 and medicine's free in Scotland but not here? And they can no longer say, oh, because we're subsidising them. That, that can't be the answer. So in that sense, it can provide political movement for the island, the islands as a whole. OK, there was uh, the chap at the back there. Does anyone else want to ask a question? Otherwise, this will be the last one. OK. OK, so the chap over there and then you over there. Yeah, uh, my question was, if independence actually happens, what will happen to the SNP? <laughs> um, I think, my, well, my guess would be that in the first general election in an independent Scotland, the SNP would win, and win probably handsomely, because I think there would be a, there would be a sort of sense of, you know, uh, now let's, let's win the victory, and I, let's just make sure. Uh, so I think, yeah. I, I think there would be a sense of sticking with the people that, that got you to that position for the first election. But then I think politics would begin to open up, and within uh, a generation, as a, who knows what, what <laughs> at the time that could be. But I, I mean, within five to ten years, I would expect um, there to be a sort of normalcy return to politics, where you would have a, a right wing, a left wing, and a centre party, or maybe a red green alliance, or you would have the spread of political offers that were available in the likes of Sweden or Denmark, for one of a better example. And in that context, I don't know. I mean, the, I have no idea. The SNP could split into component parts and some people join other parties. The biggest, the people projected the biggest beneficiary of that might actually be a, a new Scottish Labour Party. Who, who knows? Although I think that brand is a wee bit tarnished at the moment. But, um, <laughs> <clears throat> but, um, but it was, I think it would split. That'd be my, that'd be my hunch. Although there are historical uh, comparators, but that isn't the case. Where actually the national party that got you to independence stays in, in power for quite a long time, and and, and its basis of, <laughs> and the basis of that of sort of staying in power tends to be to remind people of what it used to be like, and you know, just keeping to make sure. But I, I don't know. My guess is it would split. Okay, and the final question to the gentleman over there. Oh, is it? Oh, there's a fellow with his hand up there as well. Oh, sorry, I'm really sorry, I couldn't see you there. <coughs> but did you have your hand up as well? Okay, we'll take you as well. Um, my question is this. Um, do you think that Scottish independence is inevitable? At what stage did it become inevitable? Great question. Yeah. Not sure if everyone else heard that. Is Scottish independence inevitable, and yeah, at what stage, was... if so? Um, <coughs> yes, I think it is. I, I think it probably is. I mean, I, <coughs> I think we're, you know, we're... We've been on a journey for a while. For me, it's a process that's happening. It's not, I mean, the, it's percolated by historical events like the referendum on the 18th of September or, or maybe even this general election result this year or maybe even the result next May. So there are, there are dates that, 
you know, that punctuate the process. But it is still an ongoing process. And, and as I said earlier, I think the, you know, I, I, was, I was in the, I was, I, I was involved in making the Labour Party policy for the 1997 election, which led to the Scottish Parliament. And I didn't believe this, but there were plenty of people who believed that this would kill independence stone dead. That was the phrase that was used. Mm. Uh, and it, you know, so that, um, and it hasn't worked out that way. And the reason it hasn't worked out that way is because you give people a taste of something, and they think, well, actually, Get them hooked. quite like this, you know, can we have a little bit more of it, please? Um, so, I, so yes, I think it's inevitable. I don't know when. Um, I was going to say within my lifetime, but then, you know, um, I'm not the healthiest of people, so <laughs> I, I have no idea. And the final question to the gentleman over there, Alexander Early. Hi there. Hello. Um, looking back on the referendum, what would you say you're, you find you take the most pride in out of it, and what would you like to have seen, been seen done differently? Uh, the, the thing I have most pride in uh, is that's easy. Uh, I, I was the organiser of a, an, an event called A Night for Scotland, uh, which took place the Sunday night. Uh, it was 10 days out from the rest. So it was, uh, I think it was the 11th, Sunday the 11th of September. No, not the 11th, the 7th. Yeah, because it was the 18th, 7th, wasn't it? It was referendum day. I think it was the 7th of September. And it was a big concert at the Usher Hall in Edinburgh, which uh, 3,000 capacity uh, seat. And I... I organised it partly because I, I had some contacts in the entertainment industry. So you made a few uh, quid. Well, no, it, <laughs> it, it was scheduled to break even, and it just about it just about did. So, uh, you know, we were able to hire the hall and put on a, the big bands, and we charged fifteen quid a ticket, and it covered its cost. But we had the likes of Frightened Rabbit and Franz Ferdinand and Deacon Blue, and it was just it was a phenomenal. I mean, you could just feel the atmosphere. It was one of these gigs in Mogwai. I mean, if anyone's ever seen Mogwai, Brilliant. I mean, the, 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 the intensity of sound that they produce, the, the atmosphere matched that intensity of sound, and it was just absolutely electric. And everyone, you know, waving the flags and waving and shouting. And just, it, it was just, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, even if we lose the boat, I've, I've still got this as a memory. <laughs> and, and, and it, yeah, so nothing could top that. In terms of what would, what would be done differently, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, um, I think the obviously the currency thing was a big problem. But actually, people have speculated since that you know, if you had a so say we said we'd have a Scottish pound, well, we would have been attacked on that as well. I mean, there was no there was, there was no thing you can say that wasn't that didn't leave yourself open to attack uh, or or to scrutiny. So it's not necessarily the case that if you change this policy, it would have had a different result. So I. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I do think, in retrospect, despite the the misery of the weekend after, that it was a remarkable result from our point of view. And the most the most important thing about it was the legacy. You know, the, 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 all of those all of those hundreds of thousands of people who took part in the debate and who and who got a taste for discussion and for political discourse that that, that they've not lost, which is great. Indeed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for coming to uh, an another very special evening down here. Tommy, you've been an absolutely wonderful guest uh, and it's been superb. Um, November is already sold out and the guests will be announced um, nearer the time. Next year, uh, guests confirmed for January is John Burko, uh, for February, Liz Kendall, and for uh, March, Jacob Rees Mogg. Uh, so we've got some, some very special, very different guests uh, over the next few months. Um, 
and more guests to be announced uh, as the weeks and months go by. Ladies and gentlemen, you're always fantastic. Thank you very much for coming again. But please, give a massive thank you to Tommy Shepherd. Well, Tommy Shepherd there, what an absolutely top bloke, and what a pleasure it was just to talk to him, because the fascinating changes that have happened, not just in Britain, obviously, but in Scotland, there's, there's been so much of a focus on for the last year and a half, really, coming out of that referendum campaign and into the general election and seeing what happens next. It really has been at the forefront of British politics in terms of its constitution in the way that it hasn't been, really, since the, the referendum to give it a, a Scottish Parliament uh, back, in the, back in 1998, I think it was. Um, but this is just... Um, it was a pleasure to, to be with Tommy, and, I, and I'm sure he's someone that you're going to see more of on the TV and hear more of on the radio, because he is one of the most one of the most reasonable men in Parliament, one of the most reasonable people in Parliament, and has just a natural likability that is so powerful and can often cut through... Often, And it's not just the independence referendum that's divisive. A lot of the political issues are divisive, whether it's the war in Syria, uh, the forthcoming EU referendum, changes to the welfare system. As long as there are people like Tommy, there's always hope in the world because even when he disagrees with you, he will do it in a way that is um, so reasonable and so gentle that it's a tone in which many, many of us could learn from indeed. Um, the next show that will be available to download has already been recorded. It's with the Speaker of the House, John Burko, someone I've been just dying to interview in long form for a very long time and uh, we recorded it the other night. He was absolutely brilliant, so that's a real treat to look forward to. Then the four shows after that are booked up. They're Liz Kendall, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg in March, Angus Robertson in April and Tim Farron in May. And I just can't... Those, I look forward to those like I'm going to watch a gig myself, let alone take part in it. It's just so exciting to talk to politicians of that calibre with that, with that variety of experience and, and perspective. I can't wait. And I just... Um, I hope you get a fraction of the pleasure that I get from making it. Because just to sit next to those people and, and pick their brains and obviously have a laugh with them and be a bit cheeky and whatnot, but to really understand where they're coming from and what their view of the world is. And, and to do that in a reasonable way is something that I, I really enjoy. Um, so I hope you enjoy them uh, on some... I'm presuming if you're downloading it, you're enjoying it on some level, otherwise you're a masochist. But um, if that's what you're into, that's fine. We live in a free country. Uh, well, it depends where you're listening to this, of course. Perhaps you don't. Some international listeners may not. Um... Yes, and all I would say on those tickets, and this is going to sound a little bit like I'm blowing my own trumpet, but the, the tickets for the live shows sell out months and months in advance now, even before the guests have been announced. So sometimes I do get messages and tweets off people when they've just found out who the guest is and they're trying to get tickets often even just a month or so before, but they've all gone, and I always feel slightly bad that people aren't able to go to the shows that they want to go to see. So do try and book in advance uh, if you can, because they, they just go months and months in advance now. But you can always... Try the venue nearer the time if, if um, you know, give it a try on the week of the gig or maybe the day of the gig. It's stjamestheatre.co.uk is their website and their number and all their contact details are on there. But um, thanks for coming to the live shows. Thanks for downloading these. And the John Burko one will be out soon. <laughs>